Amen. 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 With the horns now. Amen. With the rhythm now. Amen. Great. Um, we're really glad that you're here. So part of what we do at RUF each week is that we open uh, the Bible and we study it. And uh, sometimes it does feel like the Bible doesn't have much to say or to do with our lives day to day. It feels very ancient and strange in some ways. But we've been studying this book called Ecclesiastes. It's in the Old Testament of the Bible. If you find the Psalms and then you flip a couple of books to the right, you'll find it. And uh, sort of the point of Ecclesiastes is there's this person with, uh, with a lot of means, and he is looking all throughout the world trying to find satisfaction and meaning for his life, which is, of course, why everybody uh, is in this room, why you came to Appalachian, is because you have a sense that you would like to lead a meaningful life, that you would like to have satisfaction, to have your dreams fulfilled. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is doing the same thing. And he always uses this term, under the sun, because what he's doing is he's saying, I'm not going to look to God, I'm not going to look to a religious system, I'm not going to look to some sort of faith answer, but I'm just going to be right here under the sun in just the world as it is, and say, is there anything that can satisfy me? And increasingly, the, the world that we live in is one that sort of the religious, spiritual stuff is very optional. And so I think that we can really connect with that. And the passage that we're going to be looking at tonight um, concerns oppression and injustice. And uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes, his language can be very stark and intense as he tells us how the world really, really is. And one of my favorite things about being at Appalachian, actually, is how many people are very passionate about justice. How many people are very passionate about trying to fix broken systems, recognizing that there are systemic issues in our nation and the world to be addressed. And uh, so, you, you know, you come and you study sustainable tech, sustainable design, sustainable ag, social work, education, um, nonprofit management, things like that, because you want to change those systems. And if that's you, then I think you'll really connect with uh, this passage in Ecclesiastes. Also, we have a book table in the back that has free Bibles on it. If you ever just want to take one of those, don't even have to ask. So we're going to read here in your handout from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Uh, I would ask us to give our attention because I believe that God is speaking to us from this word. The writer says this, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. 
And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. An uplifting word for us tonight from the Bible. Uh, I'm going to pray before we dive into it. Um, Father, uh, every person in this room comes from a different place tonight, and we have different reasons for being here, different um, reasons why we might long to hear from you, and different reasons why we might be really adverse to that or scared of that. And Lord, this, this word that we've read is very honest to us about how really unfair and hard the world often is, especially for the vulnerable. And Lord, I just pray that you would meet us in it and that through this that we would find hope um, to press on uh, in your world um, to love you and to love our neighbor. Uh, we, we plead with you to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think that some of the most formative times in our lives are when we realize that we've really been missing something, that there was something that we just weren't getting and that we were maybe even part of the problem. We never realized that before. One of those, I have many of those moments um, because I miss it a lot. And so I have lots of opportunity to grow. Um, but one of those really visceral moments for me was, I think it was in 2015, might have been 2014. Uh, I was at a friend's house watching Monday Night Football and uh, it was his birthday. And during the halftime, uh, there was a news break in which they were announcing the verdict in um, a police officer named Darren Wilson's trial. And this police officer, Darren Wilson, had shot and killed um, a young black teenager named Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, outside of St. Louis. And um, the evidence seemed pretty clear that this was, at minimum, an excessive use of force and not a life that needed to be extinguished. And as they came up, of course... The, uh, the um, verdict was that there was not enough evidence to indict this officer. And I remember my reaction at the time was I was like, huh, okay. You know, I guess there wasn't a lot of evidence. And I just went back to watching football. And um, after the game, I was staying at this friend's house. And so I went to, to, to bed in the guest room and I got on Twitter, which I don't usually do. And uh, I noticed on Twitter that... All of my friends and people that I respected and followed, um, who were men and women of color, particularly African American men and women, um, were expressing deep levels of hurt and anger and rage, um, of deep frustration and brokenness over this. And these weren't just people that I knew. They were, they were Christians, and they were the same kind of Christians as me, like the same theology, were in the same denomination, those kinds of things. And they were hurting deeply. And my, my reaction had been just kind of mild disinterest. And um, I realized at that moment, something was wrong with me and how I was understanding um, the place we live. And I grew up in a deeply geographically segregated county in middle Georgia called Peach County. You can remember that it's in Georgia probably. And... Um, you know, predominantly white town, predominantly black town, share a high school in the county. And uh, what began to be particularly shameful to me is that I had always considered um, that I was a bit more sort of aware of racism and injustice than a lot of the other white men that I knew. And I had meaningful relationships with people of color. But that moment showed me 
that I was really missing some really deep systemic realities about the place that we live um, and how it feels to not be white in America. And it forced me to reflect on what else I might be complicit in, what systems might be benefiting me at the expense of others. And that was a moment where I began just to really be shocked um, by myself. And this passage um, is very stark in laying out that situation for us. And basically the point that the writer of this passage is saying is under the sun, here in the world, without God, there's really no such thing as real justice. Real, lasting, or meaningful justice. He says at the beginning of the passage here, he says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. That there's corruption in the place where there's supposed to be justice, right? Um, In the power structures that there are, and this is a mark of all throughout human history, is that in power structures, there is always a corruption and an abuse of those powers. The places where we go for justice tend to be the most corrupt. And the same is true for oppression. He says down in, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. There are always those who are victimized and marginalized by those in power. Um, a man that I respect deeply, his name is Dr. Carl Ellis. Uh, he's a theologian um, and a minister in my denomination. He was actually the first black man that was uh, ordained as a minister in my denomination. The way he puts it is he says, oppression is sin plus power. When a person is sinful, what the Bible would say, when, they, when they've, they've turned away from God and they have power, they use it to oppress. That every society has a dominant culture and any number of subdominant cultures, and the dominant cultures often oppress the subdominant ones. This is going to be bumpy, by the way, but we'll be all right, okay? Um, you know, it's like I, give my, I have kids, and I give one of them two cookies, and I say, share one with your sister. And the first thing that every one of them does is they evaluate the cookie, Right? They are in the place of power, a decision maker. They evaluate which cookie is more beautiful or large, and then they give the other cookie right to their sister. That's why we have this rule in my house that if you break something, the other person gets to choose, right? That's how they make sure that there's equity between them. But just like with my kids, we use our power to preserve our power, often without even thinking about it. Often we're complicit in things that we, we haven't even thought about. And the abuse of power to oppress and suppress others starts small, but then we see it, right, in bigger ways. And I'll, I'll take a low-hanging fruit example um, in the sort of geopolitical world level. Is, you know, this was, I think, a particularly more visceral for us a couple of years ago. But we think about a group like the Islamic State, right? Um, they burn people alive. They behead people. A couple of years ago, it was this really intense video that was put out of this Jordanian pilot and them burning him alive. They, ensla- they have enslaved women to be used and so they mutilate people's bodies. And we see those things and we go, those are things that happened far away or they happened long ago. Those are uncivilized people and they need to be stopped. Um, but recently I was reading a, a really great article um, called uh, When ISIS Ran the American South. And I want to read a couple of excerpts this is basically an article about uh, lynchings in the American South. Uh, and this is, this is really hard to hear, so if you need to um, tune out for a minute, it's totally fine. But um, the, the writer here is talking about some of the reasons why black men and women would have been you know, lynched in the not too long ago past. 
Um, a man named Keith Bowen in Aberdeen, Mississippi, allegedly tried to enter a room where three white women were sitting, so he was um, murdered without process. A, a black man named General Lee, imagine the shame of that, was lynched uh, um, in South Carolina for knocking on the door of a white woman's house. Um, there, in 1940, so we're getting a little closer now, a man named Jesse Thornton was lynched in Luverne, Alabama for referring to a white police officer by his name without the title of Mr. In 1919, a white mob in Blakely, Georgia, near where I grew up, lynched William Little, a soldier returning for, from World War I, who had just fought in World War I, for refusing to take off his army uniform. And uh, there, there's so many intense things in here that... Um, I'll try to be thoughtful about reading it. There, there was a man uh, named Jesse Washington in Waco, Texas, and he was lynched in front of Waco's city hall in front of over 10,000 spectators, including city officials and police who gathered to watch. Uh, there was a celebratory atmosphere at the event, and many children attended during their lunch hour. Um, the members of the mob mutilated his body in ways that it's just too hard even to... Um, he was repeatedly lowered and raised over a fire for two hours. After the fire was extinguished, his charred torso was dragged through town and parts of his body were sold as souvenirs. A professional photographer took pictures as the event unfolded, providing rare imagery of a lynching in progress. The pictures were printed and sold as postcards in Waco. And this is where I want you to, to dial in. Uh, a, a young man, a young white man used one of these postcards and sent it to his family. There's, of course, the charred corpse of this man who was murdered um, without process, who had done nothing wrong from all accounts, tied to a blistered tree in the heart of the Texas Bible Belt next to the burned body. Young white men can be seen smiling and grinning, seemingly jubilant at their front row seats in a carnival of death. One of them sent a picture postcard home. This is the barbecue we had last night. My picture's to the left with a cross over it. Your son, Joe. Um, he goes on to say, this was not medieval Europe, not the Inquisition, not a heretic burned at the stake in the old world. This was Texas, and the white people in that photograph were farmers, laborers, shopkeepers, and some of them respectable congregants from local churches in and around the growing town of Waco. Uh, and the reason I read all that is to remind us, this isn't like some ancient history, this is, this is us. Um, and the, the people that took part, those 10,000 people, how many of those people you want to guess were meaningful, involved members of the local Christian church in Waco? Maybe all of them? Quite obviously a majority of them. And of course, we would, might respond to that and say, well, those people weren't real Christians, but they were. And they were really, really, really wrong and really, really, really evil the church has been part of the problem of, in, of injustice. And it's exactly what the writer says in verse 16. He says, in the place of justice, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And that excerpt is a really visceral example. But we could talk about churches opposing integration, churches and ministries ranking types of sexual brokenness, insisting on things like conversion therapy programs for LGBTQ teenagers, Churches neglecting the poor, toxic masculinity in the culture of the church, the exclusion of women's voices, and so on and so on and so on. To say that, yes, the Christian church has often participated in injustice and oppression. I have done the same. So, 
That's the bumpiness, right? Um, that's the reality. So the question for us, no matter who we are tonight, whatever, where we're coming from, is should we disregard something like the Christian faith that has been complicit in injustice and oppression? In a, should we disregard that as we pursue justice? Does being a Christian make you care more about justice or less? Or do you really need God to produce something like justice and equity? Okay. When the, at times the record looks really, really bad. Well, I think that actually a, a, a real um, reckoning with Jesus and with the Bible should lead us to a further and deeper love and passion for justice uh, and for caring for the vulnerable. And here's why. Um, this is going to be very content heavy, so just hang on. International human rights. I think we would all probably agree that these are good things, that there are human rights and people should have them. Okay? But there's not an international consensus on human rights, if you think about it. We live in the West. You guys understand. You, live in, you swim in water every day and you often don't think about it. You live in the late modern Western America you know, capitalist society. But there's not an international consensus around the world on things like the roles of men and women, labor laws, free speech, the role of government, war, capital punishment, etc., we may think that human rights, basic human rights, are obvious and that everyone agrees on what they are, but they don't, right? So how do we come to a consensus on what are the human rights that should be protected? Um, surely we don't want to force other cultures as Westerners, we don't want to say to other cultures, you just need to accept our ideas of justice and equity and then you'll be okay. Because that would just be like, philosophical or moral colonialism, right? Saying, here's our ideas, they're best, you should, they should, they'll help you live a good life. Surely we don't want to do that. that we, should, we don't want to say, your culture should just see things the way that our culture does. right? So we have a problem with understanding human rights. Um, but you know, the writer of this passage in, in verses 18 to 21, he talks about how under the sun it seems like people, human beings, and animals are kind of the same. We kind of do the same things and we kind of go to the same place that we're functioning the same. And from a purely sort of naturalistic view, that's true. That humans are just another species in the ecosystem. But the Bible says something actually very um, deeply dignifying about human beings. And that's that God created every human being that exists and ever existed in his image. That human beings are actually the only thing that God created in his image to reflect his beauty uh, and glory and kindness to the world. People are much more than animals are created in God's image. And if that is true, then each human, regardless of age, race, sex, gender expression, sexual orientation, ability or disability, nationality, religion, socioeconomic status, etc., etc., is full of dignity, beauty, and incalculable worth. It's just the plain teaching of the Bible. Um, and believing in the God of the Bible should necessarily make you value the people that you know and the people that you don't know more than you ever did before. It's just a basic um, working out of what the Bible says about human beings that were created in God's image. Um, but I, I think most people would agree that we should have some degree of absolute for what is good and what is wrong, what are human rights that should be Preserved Moral absolutes are actually really, you might not like them for your life, but they're really good for making sure that 
that the poor and the oppressed marginalized groups are taken care of to say these things are wrong and these things are right. You know, what's beautiful about the work and the ministry of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was not that he said um, race-based segregation and racism. He didn't just say they're bad or that you shouldn't do them or they're bad for the economy. He stood with the scripture and said segregation and racism are evil and sinful. They offend God. Therefore, you shouldn't do it. And he was eternally pushing back against white uh, Christian leaders to say, this is the message of the Bible. You're offending God. And when it comes to moral absolutes as like a basis for human rights and justice, it's kind of hard to top the Ten Commandments. Pretty good. You know, if you want to stack them up against other stuff, I think they're pretty helpful. Um, as sort of a basic understanding for how to treat people. Jesus sums up the Ten Commandments as love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, spirit, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You might be here and you'd be like, I don't care anything about the Bible or any of this stuff, but you actually do think that people should love their neighbor like themselves. That that is a, a, probably a really good way for people to exist, and that is the moral absolute and the law of the Bible. Jesus says that justice is a love for God and neighbor put into action. Justice is loving your neighbor like yourself actively. Oppression is a withholding a love from your neighbor whom God created in his image. These are big, robust, beautiful words and language for justice. It's cosmically evil to oppress and marginalize people because the Ten Commandments are actually expressions of God's character. To break them and to harm people um, and to control people um, tells lies about who God is. But also in, uh, in, in verse 17, the writer says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. That, that's true. Um, the, the Bible also says that the, that the Lord cares for the, for the, for the downcast. And he executes justice speedily for the oppressed. Part of the reason why being a Christian should drive you towards justice is because God has promised to judge all things. The Lord will maintain, the, the Psalm 140 says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Nothing will escape God's judgment. No matter how well covered up that injustice is, and no matter how the systems that make that happen control power and continue to oppress people, it does not escape God's judgment. God accounts for everything. And that's good news if you've been oppressed. DeRay McKesson, who is an activist and a writer, I love what he says. He says, love holds us accountable. Evil by its nature is not accountable. And accountability at its core is justice. Love holds us, holds us accountable. Evil is not accountable. Following the Bible actually gives you language and robust categories for these things. The morality of the Christian faith provides a compelling rationale for fighting oppression and working for justice. But it's not the best thing. And this is where if you've been spacing out, I would love for you to dial in for these last few minutes. Um, the central act and action of the Christian faith and of the Bible 
is the life and death and resurrection of this man named Jesus of Nazareth. And the Bible teaches that Jesus was God himself, the one who created us in his his image, come down to us and took on our humanity to live with us. Think about Dorothy inviting people on on the path, right? With us, he lived a life of complete love to God and his neighbor. There was nothing to accuse this person for, either before God or before other people. He was perfectly loving, yet he was falsely accused, victimized by a a corrupt and oppressive governmental structure, and victimized by violent religious rulers. He was a brown man lynched by an angry mob. With only a mock trial to show for it, he was nailed to a torture device and murdered. And three days later, he was raised from the dead and he walked out of the tomb. And the Bible tells us that in that act, he actually overcame injustice, that he invited injustice and violence and power and corruption into his body, onto himself. He bore that violence and injustice so that his enemies... Um, could be forgiven. He overcame violence and injustice so that he could offer life and freedom. When he walked out of the tomb, he said, violence and injustice are not the end. If anyone comes to me, they will be a new creation. And the scripture says now in Romans chapter 3, that God is both just and the justifier of those who know Jesus by faith. What that means is that God preserves his justice. He, He punishes everything that is evil. And if you know Jesus, he put that on Jesus so that he could be just and he could justify you and make you right with him. Because in Jesus, we have a justice that doesn't create new oppressors. Justice is carried out for our sin in Christ. It isn't just forgotten or swept under the rug. It's paid for and God is able through that to justify you. So that we could really say that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Never so bad that you're beyond Jesus' ability to save you. And you're never so good that you're beyond the need of that grace. The the writer says in in verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 4, Behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. Jesus is the one who was oppressed for his people. And he's the one that promises to wipe away every tear from every eye. In Jesus, we have total justice against oppressors because God judges sin. Total empathy for victims because God identifies with victims. But abundant hope for both the oppressed and the oppressors. The good news is that Jesus is able to reconcile anyone to himself and anyone to each other. There's a beautiful example of that of a man named John Perkins. Uh, a black man that grew up in Mississippi um, who, had his, who witnessed his brother being lynched when he was a young man. And as soon as he could, he left Mississippi for California, had a family and a career. And he came to faith in Jesus. And that faith in Jesus compelled him back to Mississippi, not because he was, wanted to continue to be oppressed, of course not, but because he believed that there was some power in the reconciliation of Jesus that he could take to his community. There wouldn't just be a religious nicety to say, see, you're forgiven, it's going to be okay, just deal with it. But to say, no, if we're forgiven in Jesus, then things must change. 
And also what's beautiful, and this is the last thing I'll say about Jesus, is that knowing Jesus and the justice that's in him gives people a genuine humility and a self-suspicion. That we weren't saying, ah, see those people, but we're saying, I don't know, it starts right here. That I can begin to actually look in the face of the things that I'm complicit in uh, and work from everyone has fallen short of God's glory is what the Bible says. And that means that each person who comes to know Jesus only becomes, comes because Jesus has taken their own violent thoughts and words and deeds onto his body and forgiven them. Therefore, a Christian can never believe that they are superior to anyone, regardless of their race, sex, behavior, socioeconomic status, or any other identifying factor. Because we know we only get in here because of what Jesus did. Truly embracing Jesus leads a person to a deeper suspicion of their own motives and a willingness to learn from others and accept them. So I have an appeal. I know there's two, there's lots of kinds of people in the room, but um, two particularly that I, I would love to appeal to this for you. I need a sip of my sunshine beverage. See, that was right at the point when people would be watching, most eyes on TV. The first appeal is for you if you're here and you're, a, and you're very passionate about justice and you recognize that systems are broken and you want to fix them, but you're like, I just don't really buy this uh, Jesus stuff or the Bible. And you're not yet convinced of Christ. If you're passionate to see equity and justice reign in our land and around the world, do you have a universal basis for human rights? Do you have stable moral absolutes, not just cultural absolutes that you're imposing? Is your view of humanity as high as the Bible's? Um, Most importantly, do you know a justice that is available both for oppressors and the oppressed? That they could actually be reconciled together into one body. That is the justice that Jesus offers. And he invites you to know him in it now. Right now. And all you have to do is say yes to him. And look, you can be skeptical of the church. I get that. You can be skeptical of the Bible. But if what Jesus did in his death and resurrection is true, then the church actually needs your voice and your perspective. And my appeal to you is, will you come to Jesus and know freedom and real justice? And my second appeal is to you if you're here and you're a Christian person, um, but you're not yet convinced on practical justice and your role in either perpetuating oppression or working for justice for the oppressed. Um, My appeal to you is, are you educating yourself on the particular injustices in your world? Are you working actively for the good of those who are the most harmed in your community. And if not, I'm not saying that you're not a Christian. What I'm saying is I'm not sure you're really getting Jesus in his fullness yet. We call loving God piety and we call loving our neighbor justice. Okay? Get this, said that? We love God. That's what we call, the Bible calls piety or theological piety. And we call loving our neighbor justice. There's an individual element to that. That individually as Christians we have piety and justice. And there is a social or cultural element to that. That we, 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 we socially or, or, or corporately do piety and justice together as a body. 
individual piety and justice and corporate or social piety and justice together form a robust righteousness and godliness. And if you're not yet catching that, you are really missing what Jesus has for you. And I wonder from so many of you that I talk to, and I know you are distressed about like, what am I supposed to be doing? What is my, what is my purpose? And why, why am I even here? It's right here. Jesus has plenty of work. Test case. We'll end on this test case. Every spring break, we go to Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, a very um, geographically segregated place and a very hard and violent place to be if you're particularly a low-income person of color. And uh, on one of our trips, we discovered as we were working with uh, kids in after school that in the state of Tennessee, we'll throw rocks at Tennessee, you know, um, they, that lawmakers use third grade literacy rates in low income communities of color to determine how much money should be allocated to correctional facilities. So that means that they're checking to see if you can't read in third grade, they're spending money to build you a prison. Because that's in their mind where you're going to go, because that's where the system leads you. And if you know Jesus, If you've been saved by his blood and you're like, I was an enemy of God and now I am made right with him only through Jesus. I was reconciled by his free grace and I've been called into a diverse body of women and men all over the world and throughout time. How can you respond to that? I guess the question would be, how can you not respond to that? But what are some ways that you can respond to that? Well, obviously children need to be educated. And if you have the means of education, you must share them. Um... Children need to be fed before they can be educated, obviously. You don't take a test very well when you haven't eaten. Their families need to be supported. The good news of Jesus needs to be shared with them. Legislation needs to be changed. And if you are in that community, God has placed you in that community to steward that community well for the flourishing of all its people because all those people were created in God's image and are precious to him. And if you're not motivated to act or care about injustices and broken systems, it doesn't mean you aren't saved, but it means you're withholding a lot of yourself from the God who loves you and gave himself for you. So, there's no complete justice under the sun. I think we just know that. But in Jesus, there is robust justice and hope for all. And the question for each of us is, are we following him? Are you following him? Will you? Let's pray. Uh, Our Father and our God, we thank you that anyone that is your enemy, um, uh, which the Bible says is all of us by our natural right, can come to you and know new life. And Lord, um, I am very aware of my own hypocrisy. I would love to be more aware. Um, that Lord I fall short of loving you and loving my neighbor as myself and Lord I plead with you to change me and I plead with you to change us Lord that we would be convinced of your grace and that we would respond to you by faith we pray in Jesus name Amen. Everybody say, 